Welcome to UK Sailmakers Lessons Learned podcast series, where we share stories and tips to help us all sail with confidence. I'm Brendan Huffman from UK Sailmakers Los Angeles. Today, we are joined by Natalie Creo, who has emerged as one of the West Coast's top shorthanded sailors. Natalie competed in the 2014 single-handed Transpac aboard her Express 27 and corrected out in second place. And she completed a double-handed Pacific Cup, which is a 2,200-mile race from San Francisco to Hawaii. More recently, in 2019, Natalie skippered her Figaro 2 in the race to Alaska. Natalie was born in France and lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. She has a ton of interesting sailing experiences to share with us, including being sunk by a whale during a delivery home from Hawaii. She is also a cancer survivor. Welcome, Natalie. Look forward to our conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, I want to jump right into this race to Alaska, because um, down here in Southern California, it seems very cold, very windy, and a very <laughs> odd format where you don't even need sails to compete. You can row it, you can pedal it, you win it on your Figaro 2. What was your um, configuration? Sometimes there's no wind. What do you do when there's no wind without an engine? Yeah, so actually, so Race to Alaska is a race where uh, you basically have only two roles. One is no motor at all. It literally cannot be physically on the boat. Mm -hmm. And then you just have two waypoints. Otherwise, you just go all the way up to Ketchikan, which is the finish. Uh, and you have to have human powered propulsion because you have to use that in Victoria Inner Harbor. It's not allowed to sail in and out of Victoria Inner Harbor. We had four regular bike frames mounted at the back of the boat, powering uh, two propellers. We had a system where we could just lift them out of the water. We had eight people, yeah, on a boat okay. that's designed to hold two. And max. some were sailors, some were cyclists, correct? Yep, that's correct. <laughs> So how did you find cyclists who would want to do this very challenging race? Did you tell them what they were what they were in for? So we did have a few difficulties recruiting bikers uh, because of the level of comfort, I think, of the boat. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of them, we took them out on the water and then they were not comfortable with the movements of the boat. Um, so we ultimately had one biker that we recruited uh, online. And then we had three bikers that were um, just friends or friends of friends mm -hmm. who happen to be extremely good bikers. We knew that we would have to bike for a long period of time mm -hmm. and we would have uh, two hour watches. After that, we would rotate bikers. So we ask for minimum power output over one hour. What's the distance of this race, the race to Alaska? It's uh, 750 miles. How many days did you expect to be on the water? I think we expected about four or five days, maybe six. What kind of currents do you encounter in this race? Crazy, crazy currents. Portia Pass, for example, has about nine knots of current. Simon Hours has 16 knots of current. Our navigator, Neil, did a lot of study about the local current. So you can't control everything, right? This is still a sailing race. So sometimes you can't make the time. They're really gates. Like if you miss the window, you have to wait for at least six hours and sometimes more. Um, there is a Melgis 32. Um, which was 25 miles ahead of you getting into the latter part of the race. And you made a tactical decision to sail into more breeze. It was definitely Gale. Mm -hmm. And so we said, hey, that's where the boat is at its best. Let's just take it there. 
we couldn't follow the Melgos 32 inland when there was less wind because the Melgos 32 is a much lighter boat. Um, and so they would have sailed faster. Uh, if we wanted any chance of beating them, we had to do something different. And we actually got lucky. So the Figaro 2 is an offshore boat. It's very, very good in heavy seas and heavy wind. It is built for very heavy weather. And in this particular case, we got so lucky because it was a southerly, so it would have been downwind. The forecast was calling for about 40 knots. We saw 35, 38, 39. We never saw 40. And, uh, and we just flew past them. We got there, um, I think, 20 miles ahead of them. So you made up 45 miles in 24 hours on a Melgis 32. And, and I should have mentioned before, there are no handicaps for the race to Alaska. That is correct. You just get to the dock and then you have to ring a bell. I like that. That makes it much easier for the race committee. What point of sail were you on uh, for that 24 hours in, in the gale? Uh, we were uh, on a broad reach. With the surf, you actually have to sail pretty high mm -hmm. because if you get caught otherwise at the end of a surf, right, then you lose speed. Not only mm -hmm. is it bad for your rig and your sails, right, because you get like at some point a big puff of wind because you've lost all your apparent wind, but also you lose control because now the waves are like taking yeah. you wherever they want. And what kind of sail configuration did you have? I'm sure you reefed your main. What kind of jib did you have? Uh, we had a spinnaker up. Uh, we had what? our, uh, actually, we started with a big kite, which we blew. And uh -huh. then um, we put our uh, small kite up, uh, which is a uh, small symmetrical kite. Mm -hmm. uh, we started with a full main. Then we reefed the main when the wind went above, like consistently above 32 knots. Um, and uh, that's pretty much the configuration that we had then the, the whole time. And the boat was super stable, um, a pleasure to drive. It was fantastic. So you had a 200 mile day. When you're going that fast, I'm sure your crew was tired from pedaling. So the, the sailors loved it, right? Obviously this is a treat for any sailor. The bikers interestingly uh, stayed up on deck with us often, uh, just like to keep us company. And I don't know if they enjoyed it. <laughs> I didn't ask actually. But they were, uh, they were definitely showing, you know, team spirit. It was really great to see that the bikers were also kind of raising up to the opportunity and, and becoming sailors themselves and a full members of the team. That race is quite a trial by fire, I think. I, I can't imagine <laughs> that being my first experience racing or even sailing. Um, anyway, so you made up a lot of time on the Melges 32 and then approaching the finish, um, the winds moderated. And so Ketchikan is a little bit up inland and the wind even completely shut down. We had to pedal away to the finish line. As I recall reading the sailing instructions of this race, um, there is a, an assortment of prizes, including cash and a set of steak knives. We actually finished third, by the way. The, um, there was a Shark 40 that finished first. And so they got the nice. first prize which is $10,000. And typically they just pin it to a tree and you just have to go and get it from its mm -hmm. Ziploc bag. Mm -hmm. uh, the second prize, which we call, you know, the first loser prize is a, a set of steak knife. And then there's no prize for uh, all the other finishes. Most people don't do this race for the prize. You really do it for the adventure. What is great though, that you have so many different types of boats. You can always find a boat that's kind of similar to your boat mm -hmm. and you know, you will have a race. Okay. I want to switch gears. Um, mm -hmm. You did single-handed Transpac, which is another 2,200-mile race from San Francisco yep. to the island of Kauai, Hanalei Bay. Um, so viewing that solo as an accomplishment, doing it on an Express 27, which is so small, um, goes even higher. 
in my book. I'm seeing your videos on YouTube on the Express 27. Um, and that was a challenging race too. And I, 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 unless I'm mistaken, I think you had an autopilot issue. I had uh, my primary autopilot that just broke, which was basically just burned. Like mm -hmm. the, the brain just burned out. Um, so I had to go to a secondary pilot. And then, uh, yeah, I had massive power issues. Uh, a lot of wires just corroded away mm -hmm. uh, during the race. So that was very challenging because it means you have to effectively um, steer a lot yourself as opposed to have the autopilot steer. Right. And when you have to steer yourself, um, you start losing sleep. You can't yep. leave the helm. Uh, what point of the race did you lose uh, your primary autopilot? Four days in. It was So basically the first four days were brutal. We had about 40 knots, um, gusting 45. It was a big, um, a big gale. Um, and I think the autopilot just didn't like it. <laughs> I think it got a big surge of current and that just kind of did it. And so pretty early in the race. So you sailed at least 1600 miles without use of your primary autopilot. Yeah. And the and second one, I mean, it works, but it obviously is not a high performance autopilot, although it really surprised me. So I had a, a Pelagic as a spare autopilot mm -hmm. and um, it worked surprisingly well, even though we didn't have any of the sensor input. So we didn't know about, you know, kind of wind direction, wind speed, um, or any, any uh, of that. I think he had a GPS inside, but that's it. I've done a few races to Hawaii. Only one time it was blowing 35, 40. I can't imagine what it's like on a 27 foot boat. How long did that gale last uh, from the start? How many days? About four days. Cause I think that's when you get into the lighter air zone of the race where it's all like about a pant wind. It's not that bad. I mean, you're, we're not upwind, right? You're kind of reaching a little bit. Um, and the boat had, uh, I mean, I had two reefs in, and then I had my little number four jib, which I could still just sheet in with one hand because it was so small. It was just really, really wet. When you are very light, there's actually an advantage often because you, you can just go really fast. How many days uh, did it take you to finish that race? I think it was 12, 11 or 12 days. That's pretty um, quick. Once we got to the trade wind, there were uh, quite a few squalls at night. So that helped make, uh, I think I did a 180 mile day at some point. So it was really, really helpful mm -hmm. to, because the express also is very fast downwind. Oh yeah. It sails really well. So as soon as you get some wind downwind, then you, you start to be really competitive. Um, and then there was one day I was just so tired because in the lighter air, um, you have, of course, the physical need of being just awake but mm -hmm. it's very mentally tiring right because you constantly have to trim your sails you constantly have to make an adjustments because the the apparent wind is so light that if you move you know an extra half a knot right you might be like going 25 percent uh, faster than you were and so now all of your sail trim is off uh, i had to take literally half a day off like <laughs> I just, had to just take a, a dip in the main and, and just sleep <laughs> i think everyone in single-handed transpack goes through at least one of those periods where they're just so drained, they just need to sleep and they lose a few miles, so be it. Uh, yeah. What time of day did you finish in Hanalei Bay? It was broad daylight, so that was great. It was much easier because you have to go um, past a reef I and mean, then there's a bunch of boats that are anchored. And of course you're sleep deprived. And so now you have to like figure out to anchor. But this is where the single-handed sailing society really helps. They have a boat out, they have people on your boat, they help take your sail down, they help anchor your boat. They bring you a drink of your choice. Uh, they even brought me croissant. It was fantastic. <laughs> it was probably the best croissant I had in my entire life. <laughs>
personally, I think Hanalei Bay is one of the most beautiful anchorages in the world. I mean, Hawaii is such a paradise for sailing because you have wind. Um, so let's talk about another uh, race to Hawaii you did. You did double-handed division yep. in the Pacific Cup, um, which I have done, and that is also um, challenging in different ways. What kind of boat were you on? I was on the same Express 27, same autopilot, double-handed really in this case, right? means you're single-handed half the time. Mm -hmm. Right. So you get to sleep a bit more, but otherwise you, you're still uh, mostly handling the boat on your own with the autopilot. And how many days did that take in the Pacific? So it was much lighter air mm -hmm. uh, that year, like particularly at the start. So I think it took us 14 days. That's so interesting um, to me is that it's kind of feast or famine that first day or two leaving yeah. Northern California. Um, there's some years where boats are adrift um, off the Fairland Islands for two days. And other times it's blowing 30, 35 knots and you're you're holding on wondering how you're going to do this for the next two hours, let alone two days. Did you um, sail more aggressively when you were double-handed in terms of um, keeping the shoot up longer when it was windier or did you play it safe? We definitely sailed more aggressively. And I think it's because we felt that there was this comfort of sleep. I kept the shoot up, uh, even single-handed, right? As soon as I, I was on deck, I think I, when I took it down, it's like, okay, I'm too tired, so I'm going to sleep. Um, but often I would um, sleep early morning when the wind would be lighter. And then I would then um, hand steer at night during squalls. So the, but the kite would be out. That's why it actually makes this boat so, so fast and so fun. Actually, the major issue that we had in that race is that force day broke um, day four also. Like everything happens to me on day four, I think, on, that, on those races. Um, so we were afraid of losing the reg. Fortunately, it happened when we were already downwind. We had a spinnaker mm -hmm. up. So basically, say, well, just don't round up. <laughs> just let the spinnaker hold the mast up. We rigged uh, one of a spare line, basically, right? We had our halyards first to try to help it, but that was not going to be strong enough. Mm -hmm. And of course, if we had our halyard, um, hold up the mast, then we couldn't use the higher to hoist sails. And then lines are very stretchy as opposed to cable. Uh, so the mast was pumping a lot. So there were some conditions of wind and waves where we could actually have the kite up because the mast was like, like really all over the place. And we were worried that it would like just go through the deck at some point. So we, we had to take it really slowly and really kind of experiment and see what kind of conditions we could actually um, sail. And then we also used that to improve a little jury rig where did the head uh, stay break was it at the bottom of the toggle or the top no, it was of the tank? inside the swage because it was not you know typically it would break right at the edge where you have a bit of coercion right and then that obviously it's it's a little weakened so it would break there no but it, it was literally inside the swage and then it just kind of pulled out was that the original headstay um, when the boat was commissioned or had it? No, it was a new one, but it had been put on the boat about four months prior to the race. And then we had on quite a bit of uh, racing and sailing on the boat with that force day because we didn't want to have anything new on the boat. Um, but yeah, sometimes, you know, accidents happen and, <laughs> and then you just have to deal with it. But obviously that uh, we were actually winning our division when that happened. And then we very slowly ended up going backwards. <laughs> everybody everybody yeah, else it's frustrating it seems just studying the the gear failures and and transpacks obviously single-handed transpack um, we hear about autopilots failing because yep. in the other races you're not you can't use them mm -hmm. um, boom vangs rudders and head stays yeah uh, a lot of head stays have broken in these races too okay now i want to talk about returning from hawaii why don't you start 
with what kind of boat it was and then um when you experienced the whales yeah uh it was a, a 440 uh who had done uh the pacific cup race and so i was part of the delivery crew with the owner and then uh, two other people so yeah we're about 500 nautical miles north of hawaii about four days into the delivery maybe seven knots of wind uh pretty calm seas for the pacific and yeah we saw a part of uh sperm whales we actually didn't know there were sperm whales we just say hey whales uh mm -hmm. we tacked away from them but we were all on deck with our camera taking pictures and then uh, we um, just heard a very big noise and it was one of those whales who decided to ram the boat. And we didn't know at the time again, right? Like it was like, okay, what's going on? And then as we investigated, we found a 2.3 hole in the hole and then a lot of cracks also all below the waterline. Yikes. Yes, it's uh, as the skipper who's a, who's a, a British uh, said it, like he looked at this, it's like, hmm, this is significant damage. <laughs> like, yes. So you guys quickly had to make a decision um, how, and I'm sure the decision immediately was begin preparations to a, abandon ship. Um, how long did it take for the, for that decision to be made? And how long did it take for the boat to um, take on so much water that it was clear you need to get off? So the skipper, of course, in these conditions, right? Like really like kind of take charge uh, of everything. And to his credit, A, the boat was very well prepared, and then he just did not lose his calm. And so it was very precise and direct in his commands, which makes things a lot easier. Mm -hmm. uh, he made the decision really early on, but I, th I think it may have been also, hey, just in case. Like, I don't know that he said, hey, I, we definitely are sinking, but I'm not going to change it. Um, so um, he instructed one crew member to deploy the life raft. At the same time, he issued a mayday on the on the SSB radio and on VHF. And then what we're trying to do is, of course, um, try to stop the water from coming in, like stuffing the hole with big tail bags and that kind of things. Uh, and, but it still took about 30 minutes-ish for the deck to be washed, basically. So like the cabin was full of water and then it was like the deck was starting to be uh, underwater. Yeah. Um, what kind of bilge pumps were you using? Um, I'm sure there's an electric bilge pump on a boat that size and some manual ones. How effective were they? Uh, we're using everything that we had, including bailing buckets mm -hmm. uh, and the intake from the engine, uh, which we directed to the inside of the boat instead of the sea. Since oh, it's pretty much the same thing uh, by then. Um, I, uh, I mean, there was... It wasn't a match for the rate at which the water was coming in. Um, putting the um, stuffing a sail bag helped a little bit, um, but it was still like coming. And then the the cracks, there was like so many small cracks, but all like they started to add up. We tacked the boat the other way to make uh, the portion of the hole that was below the water line a little smaller. Mm -hmm. uh, we reefed the main so that there would be less of a bow wave, right? So less water coming in through the speed of the boat. We also um, wrapped a sail on the outside, uh, a jib, to try to get some pressure against the, um, the hole. But the sail was still, um, I think, too porous. So there was still some water coming in. Mm -hmm. But um, all those efforts, I think, um, got us to 30 minutes. I think otherwise the boat would probably have gone down much faster. And what degree of panic? Uh, was there on board or was everyone uh, really focused um, on the job and no need to be overly scared? 
there was no panic. I think uh, to a large extent, it was because you modeled a lot of your behavior on the skippers and the skipper mm -hmm. was very calm. He knew exactly what to do. Okay, well, we have a major incident, but we we prepared for it. First order was like stuff the hole. I have to figure out how. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but then he, you know, turned to another crew member and said, "Hey, deploy the life raft." So and then he said, "And get the um, food and emergency water, whatever." Uh, and then he uh, went to the radio and and be uh, and decided to be a communication person. So because it was so precise, and I think after that you're just so focused on the very short term problem that you no longer have time to be uh, um, to be panicked and it becomes just an engineering you know kind of problem natalie when the skipper um got on the radio single sideband and vhf yep. did he get a response right away to his mayday or did it take several several tries uh, um we didn't get any responses at all obviously we set off the epurb we also had a um, satellite phone and that's really ultimately what saved us uh, but we mm -hmm. used the sat phone on the life raft and who did you call uh, from the satellite phone so that we at the time now i think you can make emergency calls from satellite phones but at the time you couldn't it wasn't wired up that way so and we didn't have the phone number of the coast guard so we called his son i mean he called his son who happened to be boarding a plane back to los angeles so and it was right at the time where the um, flight attendant would come in and say sir you have to turn off your cell phone now yeah <laughs> i was like, no i have to take this call so he took the call and then uh, we had our gps coordinates so he uh shared the gps coordinates with the pilot of the plane which shared those with the control tower and the control tower took those coordinates to the coast guard and that and the EPIRB was like two data points that confirmed that there was a, a problem. So we wound up in priority in terms of uh, response. So I just like the visual of the skipper's son boarding a flight. I'm just going to imagine it was British Airways being told <laughs> to turn off his phone, but then working with uh, the pilots in the cockpit to provide the coordinates to the Coast Guard. Yeah, I. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, <laughs> actually the the first phone call was to the race committee uh, but it was really early in the morning so we just got a voicemail mm. <laughs> so, you know yeah, you call is important to us <laughs> yeah, yeah that must have been really frustrating but exactly but, uh comical when you get back to shore um did you have any challenges or problems getting from the boat into the life raft uh, not at all. No, no. The life raft was, I mean, the, the boat was still afloat. Mm -hmm. So it was easy to just step into the, the life raft. Uh, we had plenty of time to load water, to load food, to load uh, all of our grab bags. Um, where we had, you know, our passports, we had um, some spare clothes and, and that was it. And then we were all wearing our power weather gear, um, even though it was quite hot. So there was absolutely no problem at all. The life raft deployed as it's supposed to you just kick it out you just pull the painter and then it just kind of self-inflates um mm -hmm. so it was a six-person life raft even though we were four people on the boat because you couldn't find any smaller um but to be honest six person uh, six person life raft felt really small like between us and the gear like we didn't yeah. have enough room so i'm trying to imagine six people <laughs> would be a nightmare <laughs> having done the safety at sea uh classes where you get in the life raft with eight other people yeah, um, it's really cramped. How did you uh, disconnect the uh, painter from the the sailboat before it sank when you were in the lifecraft? Did you cut it, or was there enough time to untie it? 
Uh, we cut it. We had a, a knife and we cut it. Did you see sharks? We didn't see sharks, but um, technically it was a part of the world where they are sharks. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, great whites. It's very rare that, um, you know, great white sharks don't just typically attack human. Like whenever they are attacked, it tends to be a mistake. And in this case, we didn't look anything like a seal. How long were you in the life raft before you were um, picked up? Uh, so little less than uh, 24 hours, but our spirits really improved after six hours because this is when, uh, the, so the Coast Guard sent a, a plane. We were out of range of um, helicopters, so we could not be rescued just like directly from the Coast Guard. We saw the C-30 plane. They threw a canister in the water, which we had to kind of uh, swim for. And in it was a VHF, which is when we started to be able to communicate. But at that point, we knew that at least the Coast Guard was alerted to our condition. And then definitely, you know, putting our trust in those professionals uh, to kind of rescue us. And we were really not in, you know, we were in a precarious position, but the sea state was really calm. It was a very nice warm day. So there wasn't any, you know, immediate danger. Um, none of us were injured. We had plenty of food, plenty of water. Um, we were under a canopy, right? So there was no risk of uh, being sunburned or anything like this. So it was um, definitely not something you want to prolong for too long, but it was not something that was, um, you know, absolutely urgent and terrible. And then they ultimately redirected a container ship to come pick us up. And did the container ship take you back to the mainland or to Hawaii? The container ship was on its way to Yokohama. We had learned that there was one fishing boat who was also on its way. Uh, that fishing boat was on its way to Hawaii. And so in the end, um, the captain said, okay, well, why don't you go on to that fishing boat? And so they transferred us onto the fishing vessel. And how long did it take you to get back to Hawaii? Two days from your pickup? Uh, I think three days, but yeah, two, three days, something like this. Um, they definitely were very, uh, very welcoming. And also they, at that point, they had no obligation to take us on. Well, I'm glad that story ended well. Um, and it's very educational. Again, I've been to these uh, safety at sea seminars where there's a lot of great information, but hardly anyone who teaches these seminars has actually been in a life raft or had to abandon uh, a sailboat before. Um, Natalie, I want to start wrapping up. I want to make sure um, people know where to find you. Um, your website is nataliecreoracing.com. If anybody wants to take a look and uh, see what it's like to do Race to Alaska, we all filmed uh, things and then we just edited it together into a movie. And then we also had some footage from the race organization or, or other boats. Now and the seven dudes, it's on YouTube. It's been fun speaking with you and checking out your website. And, and one of the big coincidences, um, we're supposed to race together this weekend on a Santa Cruz 52. Hey, fantastic. Islands race. Yes. Fantastic. But, Natalie, thank you so much. You've been listening to lessons learned from UK sailmakers you can check us out on the internet, uksailmakers.com, and you can find our podcasts available um, in our newsletters and on our website. Thanks for listening.